Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. All right, I want to talk to you this morning about blind spots. And blind spots, typically when we use that phrase, we're talking about uh, that, that context of driving and what happens between what you see when you're looking forward, paying attention on the road, and the stuff that you're seeing in your rearview mirror. There's a gap that exists, and you don't know what's in it unless you are intentionally, purposefully looking into your blind spots to make sure that there's not an accident. The National Highway Administration, Safety Administration, says that there are over 800,000 blind spot-related accidents every year. Results in over 300 fatalities and countless personal, physical injuries, emotional injuries, financial stress, all kinds of devastation and trouble comes because we have these blind spots. But you also know that blind spots aren't only something that happens in the context of driving, but we have blind spots in our personal growth. We have blind spots in our character. Parents, as soon as you started having kids, you were like, I see now, <laughs> you are my blind spot monitoring system because now I see all of those things in my character that I, I wasn't aware of. We, we have blind spots in our emotions and blind spots in our leadership with people and we have blind spots in our walk with the Lord. There are these areas where we're just not aware of them. The, the problem with blind spots is, is you can't see what you can't see and unless you're really looking and you're intentionally, purposefully keeping an eye on all of the wings there are blind spots that we all need to be aware of in our life. And there is, I believe, a blind spot in all of our lives, in everyone's life, that we need to be very aware of and be intentionally looking for when it comes to our walk with the Lord. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Grab your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, 45 is a favorite verse of legacy for a very, very long time. It's the root of one of our church's core values. You probably heard this, we are most like Jesus when we serve. This is one of our core values that anchors us as a church. We say it with me, ready? One, two, three. We are most like Jesus when we serve. Absolutely. We're going to look at that today. We'll see that today. It's interesting, when you get to, to Mark, um, what we've already established in this study over the last several weeks is Jesus has been so incredibly clear to his disciples about what he had come to earth to do. Jesus said, speaking of himself, he said, I, the Son of Man, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we've seen how God loves, how he so loves people who are lost. And that's the word the Bible uses over and over and over again to describe people who are going through life and they don't really know which way to go and they have not found saving faith in Jesus Christ yet. And the Bible declares over and over again that God really cares about lost people. So Jesus says about himself, guys, fellows, disciples, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And when you get to Mark, we're going to find over and over and over again, Jesus is telling his disciples what it will take from him to seek and save that which is lost. In fact, three times in a row, Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. Ironically, Mark 8, 31, 9, 31, and 10, 32, Jesus says, fellas, let me tell you the road that we're on where it's headed. We're headed to Jerusalem, and there I will be shamed, I will be ridiculed, I will be, I will be called names, I will be taken, I will be beaten, I will be tortured, I will be killed, and in three days I will rise again. Three times, Jesus says, this is the road they were on. Three times, they don't understand it. And three times, Jesus has to explain to them again the path that they're walking on. I'll read you the first one, Mark 8, 31. 
Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. I must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days I will rise again. And do you know how the disciples took the news? In this instance, Peter took Jesus aside from the rest of them and he began to rebuke Jesus. (laughs) How dare you say something like that, Jesus? Are you crazy? Stop talking like this. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. Or in other words, you're not thinking about what God is doing. You are not concerned with what God's will is and how God is working out his will and how God has a perfect plan. You're not concerned with that. You're only concerned with yourself, with merely human interests. So the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus tells them again, this is the road they were on. This is what it costs for me to seek and save the lost. And in this case, it says that they didn't understand it. They were just absolutely confused. And they maybe were a little embarrassed to say so because it says they were afraid to ask. They, they didn't want to say, Jesus, we still don't understand what you're talking about here. So instead of asking for clarification, they began arguing about who was the greatest disciple among them. Right? Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. And they go, I don't know. I think I'm the best, though. That's what I think. How about you? No, I think I'm the best. So then we get to Mark 10. That's where we are now. And two of the disciples make the same mistake again. Listen to, to verse 32. Follow with me. It says, and again. Somebody say, and again. And again he took them aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, I mean, he's so clear here, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, again, this is Jesus' way of referring to himself, I will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn me to death and will hand me over to the Gentiles. He's talking about himself. They will mock me, spit on me, scourge me, kill me. Three days later, I will rise again. Two of the disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus. You think they said, oh, we finally get it, teacher. Thank you. You've explained it to us. No, they, they come up and say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Yeah. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, okay, Jesus, grant that we sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. That's their response. The other disciples, verse 41 tells us that they were indignant. They were, they were upset. Maybe they were upset because of the audacity of James and John and this solemn moment to come up and ask for something for themselves or because of the sin nature that we know exists in all of us. Because we're human, maybe they were just upset because James and John beat them to the punch. Because all of the other disciples deep down are going, oh, I wanted that place can't believe it you've been there in a moment when somebody asks for something that you really wanted and you're going I can't ask for it now I'll look dumb they've already beat us to it because they all want to rise they they all want a place of power and glory now this thing happens three times in a row Mark 8 Mark 9 Mark 10 and you begin to get the sense that Jesus is really trying to tell them something and you get the sense as Mark writes this he's really trying to tell us something Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. 
He goes to the disciples one by one. He invites them into his life to share life with him, to walk with him, to join him in living for something more than just getting up and making it through the day, but to join him in living on this, this incredible mission of going into the world and rescuing those who have been lost, who have been confused by, by, by cultural religion, who have been lost by truth that, that promises so much and delivers nothing, but to go and to bring light and life into the world. This is great news so far for the disciples. And we love this. We love the idea of being invited into life with Christ, life and life abundant. We love that. But we, we struggle. We're not as comfortable when it comes to understanding that the road that that takes us on, the road that it was taking them on is one that would go through the path of suffering and would go through the path of self-sacrifice and and in this case, even condemnation and death. It is easy for us to take from the cross, but to take up your cross or to live for the cross is a much harder thing for us. We dream about satisfaction in Jesus because he, he does satisfy, satisfies the longing of every heart in a way that we are, are still surprised at, even if we spend our whole life walking with him, that there's more satisfaction and joy found in Jesus than in every other pursuit in life. And it shocks us day after day when it comes again. So we dream of that, just endless satisfaction and joy. We dream of being honored and glorified with Jesus, but our big blind spot that we have in our walk with the Lord is understanding that what Jesus calls us to, the path that he brings us on is one in which we lay aside our preferences and we set aside the things that we really think are our our untouchable rights in this life, that he calls us to lay those things down and lay down our life with him. That's what Jesus says here. Look at verse 42. Calling them to himself. Jesus says, this is after James and John say, just let us rise with you. He calls them to himself and he says, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, the, the people who are far from God, lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But fellas, it's not this way among you. It's not this way in my kingdom. We talked about being kingdom citizens a couple of weeks ago, remember? It's not this way in my kingdom. In my kingdom, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. See, our, our blind spot is that we can't really understand or we haven't really fully embraced the thing that Jesus is calling us to. Maybe even if we can wrap our minds and intellectually assent to the idea of it, We haven't fully embraced it. Something in us still fights against it. What we really want, and I mean, let's just be honest. If we're honest, what we really want, we desire self-advancement. We want a good reputation for ourselves. We want to build a name for ourselves. We want to get ahead in this life. Don't lie about it. I mean, you're in church, right? So that would be ridiculous. Something we all desire, and yet Jesus is calling us to. He desires for us that we would admit our helplessness. And that we would deny ourselves, that we would give up our rights, that we would take the last place, not the first place, and that we would become servants of all, that we would be willing to give up our our life, our faith, our fortune, that we would give our life up and follow him, and that we would become servants. He wants us to become servants. The the commentarian uh, Gordon MacDonald said this. He said, you can tell whether you're becoming a servant by how you act when someone treats you like one. This is good. Listen to this. You can tell whether or not you're becoming a servant by how you act, what happens even inside of you when someone treats you like one. I think we're a lot more likely to agree with the ancient Greek philosopher Plato 
than to agree with Gordon MacDonald or to agree with Jesus. Here's what Plato said. He said, how can anyone be happy when he's the slave of anyone else at all? Right? How can anyone be happy if he has to be servant to any other person? Our blind spot, friends, our blind spot is that we are much more likely to functionally agree with Plato than we are with Jesus. We, we want to rise. We do. It's in us. Every morning when we wake, we don't rise from our bed, but we seek to rise in this life. We want to rise. We're a lot more comfortable being on top than being servants. We want Jesus without the demands of the cross. We want life from Jesus without death with Jesus. Are you with me right now? Do you, do you get that? There's a question in this passage I want you to see. I think it can help us with it if we begin to wrestle with this idea of do I have a blind spot like this? Is there a blind spot? Have I fully embraced the path to the cross? Not just the life that results from the cross, but the path to the cross. And the question here is a question that I'm curious if you could imagine for a moment that Jesus bodily appeared here. And in this moment, you could see him with your eyes. You could hear audibly his voice. And he was to look at you. And he was to say, Ken. Or he was to say, uh, Mark. Or Bruce. Or he was to say, Linda. Bob and Lori. Jesse. If he was to look at you and he was to say, what do you want me to do for you? What would your answer be? If he was to call out your name, Graham, if he was to call out your name, Andy, I said, what do you want me to do for you? I think a lot of us might have a response that's similar to James and John, maybe not word for word, but it might follow kind of the sentiment. They say, grant it that we may sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your glory. I mean, all they're really asking is, Jesus, can we be near you? Can we be on your sides? Can we be up close? Because why? Because we love you and we're for you and we're with you and we want to be, think of ourselves as able and capable. So Lord, when you're glorified, we want to be right in the middle of it with you. That's what they're, they're asking for. They want to, to rise with, with Jesus. But there's another way to answer this question that's in this text in the next few verses that it's kind of a surprising connection that we may have missed somewhere along the way. Starting in verse 46, we come across a blind man, a beggar named Bartimus. In our kids' storybook Bibles, we call him Blind Bart. And Blind Bart had nothing. Blind Bart was marginalized in society. Blind Bart was a bit of an outcast. He, he really had no standing at all. And Blind Bart, it says in verse 47, he heard that Jesus the Nazarene was coming. And when he, he did, he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, which is a messianic title. Don't like miss that little hint. Blind Bart already sees something about Jesus that many people didn't see. Blind Bart already sees that he is the Messiah. He believes something about Jesus being the promised one. And he cries out, son of David. He also believes that Jesus can help him. Have mercy on me. Now the crowd had no time for Blind Bart. Look at verse 48. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. I don't know what sternly means, but I I suppose they are trying to shut him down and shut him out. He is a bother to them. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. He heard his voice and he said, call him to come to me. 
And so the crowd who had been shutting him up called the blind man and said, come on, let's go, let's go. Take courage, Jesus is calling you. And he throws aside his cloak, which we can suppose a blind beggar, that is his bed, that is his chair, that is his blanket, that is his protection from the elements, it's his everything. And he throws it aside and he jumped up and he came to Jesus. He is the most uh, least likely of all disciples, right? You've got these 12 who've been traveling with Jesus, doing miracles with Jesus, listening to Jesus, repeating the thing, kinds of things that he was saying, having great revelations uh, of, of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And then you've got the least likely of disciples here with nothing to offer, no visions of grandeur on the outskirts of society, not even included, not even welcomed in the corporate worship and the temple. And what he does is he asks He comes to Jesus and says, have mercy on me. And Jesus does the thing that we see him do so often in the Gospels. Jesus responds to this man with a question. And I want you to understand this. A lot of times we go, it's annoying when I ask someone a question and they respond to me with a question. Jesus does this all the time. It must have been really annoying to be around Jesus. No, here's what Jesus does when he asks a question to a person who has a need. He asks them a question to give them an opportunity to state their need before him and then begin to express trust that he can meet that need. That's why Jesus asks people questions. So they will state, they will reveal the true nature of their need and they have the opportunity to say, I have need, will you help me with my need? And so this is what happens here in verse 51. Answering him, Jesus says, look at these words, guys. What do you want me to do for you? It's the same sentence that he gave James and John, right? It's the same exact words as he gave to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, only used one other time, right after the resurrection, when Jesus appears. And Mary says, Rabbi, it's the only other time that, that, that phrase is used in the New Testament. Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Go, because you have recognized your helpless state. You have recognized something about who I am, that I am the Messiah. I am the the son of David. I'm the one who comes to seek and to save that which is lost. I come to bring healing and brokenness and wholeness to life. I've come to bring life to this broken world. You've, You've expressed faith in me, pleases me. I heal you. And listen to this. Immediately, blind Bart regained his sight and he began following him on the road. As soon as Jesus heals him, he jumps up and he takes off following Jesus down this road. Now, if you've been reading Mark along the way, like any of his readers have, what you've noticed is Jesus is making a big impression upon his disciples. And Mark is talking about it. We're on a road. We're going somewhere. We're not just aimlessly walking around looking for trouble to get involved in and and help out. We're on a path. We're on a road. And I've told you where the road's going. It's going to the cross. It's going through Suffering Street. It's It's going through shame and it's going through persecution. It's going through sacrifice. It's going through difficulty. It's going through death. It's going through resurrection. We're on a road. And so as Mark shows us this, I think Mark is telling us something. He's telling us this, that a disciple, a disciple is someone who knows, who knows that he or she is blind and simply wants Jesus to give us sight so that we can follow him along the road wherever he goes. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's someone who knows 
that we've walked in the darkness, that we, Ephesians 2, that we were once dead in our trespasses, that we were blind and could not see the right way to go, that we were lost, Luke 15. We looked again and again and again and again at these parables of what it looks like to not have saving faith in Jesus. A disciple is someone who knows he or she is blind and simply wants Jesus to give sight so we can follow him along the road. That's a disciple. How do we get there? How do we get to the place of blind Bart? How do we become like this guy? I just want to, you're the Messiah, I just want to see and I want to follow. Well, we get there by understanding that this is the path that Jesus took for us. He calls us to follow him, to join him on the path that he took for our sake. Understanding, if the message of serving, of being a servant, of being the least of all, of being a slave to all, if that was the only message of Christianity, there would be no good news, right? There would be no gospel if the message, the only message we had to convey is you should all go low and be servants. No, that's why Jesus said what he does in verse 45. It's the, the, the crux of the whole thing. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man, again himself, even I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I did not come to this earth to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life away for the sake of others being brought close to God. It's my whole reason for coming. And notice the word come. He says, I, I came here. That means that Jesus already existed, doesn't it? It means that Jesus wasn't just new when he came into the earth, that he already existed in eternity. Can we agree that Jesus is the eternal son of God? Can we agree that far today? Can we agree that as John 1 says and Colossians says, that all things were made in him, through him, by him, and he holds all things together by the power of his hands. Can we agree with that so far this morning? Yes? Okay, that's Jesus' state in timelessness outside time where he lived in full glory for eternity with a glorifying dance of love between the Father, Son, and Spirit overflowing into a creation that is made to enjoy and delight in the goodness and the grace and the glory of, of the one God. And Jesus left timelessness to enter time. He left glory and put it aside. He emptied himself, Philippians says, of glory that he might come not to be served, not to come and demand service, but he came as the strongest being in the universe to come up underneath us. Not because he's our, our godly doormat that we may wipe our feet on and get our way. We step on him to get through the door that we think that we want in our life. No, as the strongest being in the universe, he came to come under us and to lift us up. To bring us to a place that we could never be on our own. To carry us through the cross to the place of life and salvation and freedom. Jesus is the strongest being of the universe. Remember that moment when he washes the disciples' feet? It says just before he does this, it says he knew that all things were in his hand. It's a key line. He knew that all things were in his hand. His next action, he got down and he began to wash feet. He's not weak, he's strong. It's strength that allows him to come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And my goodness, I wonder, I wonder how many days a week that we have woken up and said, today is the day that I get to serve. I wonder how many days a week it's the beat of our heart 
just pumping today. I get another day on this earth to serve people, to give away my life, to give away my faith, to give away my fortune, that others would be lifted up. I wonder how many days we've had in our life like that are are more likely probably, like me, you, most days the alarm goes off and we get up and we go, and I sit there for a second, I go, and it takes a little bit to get this moving. And I get going, and all that's on my mind is, golly, I got so much I got to do today. All this stuff that I got to manage and things that have to get done. I got places to be and, and work to accomplish. I got I to gotta earn. I got to accomplish today. And by golly, if somebody could just help me out today. If somebody could just serve me, just make my day a little lighter, a little brighter, a little better. I mean, I, I'm a good guy. I kind of deserve that, don't you think? I'm a good guy. If somebody could just serve me today, oh, what a joy that would be. Versus how many days do I wake up going, oh, today is the day the Lord has given me to serve, to give my life away for a greater purpose. And all the things that I have to do, all the responsibilities I have to do, oh, those are opportunities. Those are places in which I get to declare, I get to demonstrate the goodness of God through my life and through my, through my lips, the declaration of of Jesus in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10 is I will give my life away. I will be crucified. I, the eternal son of God, I've come not to be served but to serve. And then he says that in in verse 45. This is central to both his identity, these are words we talk about a lot here, and his mission. You follow me? There's no impact if this isn't central to his identity And to his mission on this earth. Jesus did not come to achieve a position of greatness. Jesus abandoned a position of greatness to take the lowest place so that he could hold up. He could bring up and hold up the family of God. Here's how Jonathan Edwards put it. He said, Jesus suffered that we might be delivered. Follow with me. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death to take away the sting of sorrow in our lives and to impart everlasting consolation for us. He was oppressed and afflicted so that we might be supported. He was overwhelmed with the darkness of death that we might have the light of life. Friends, this is why Jesus and Christianity is so radically different from all of the other so-called gods of, of world religions around us because in Jesus we have a God who could not shrug off evil, could not shrug off brokenness in this world. He would not, could not shrug off sin and its consequences in our lives and like the, the little so-called gods of false religions who look at us and say, oh, you have made such a mess of this life. You need to now go and clean up the mess so that you can come to me Jesus says no I have come to do what you could never do I came to clean up the mess and to hold you up out of it and to give you to give you life it's his sacrifice that proves his love isn't it like how would we know that God is love is really true and accurate if not for the sacrifice sacrifice is the mark is the measure of real love in a person's life how how are your kids ever going to know that you love them well you sacrifice everything for them and they don't get it it's years later when they come to you and go oh I can see what you did for me I can, maybe they say thank you if you're lucky right I can see what, what you gave up for me. And you go, they go, you're a good parent. I can see how you loved me. It's because you sacrificed for me. The way we know the love of God is real is because Jesus came. His identity, his mission was a mission of sacrifice to hold us up. 
Isn't it, isn't it ironic? Think about this. James and John, their one request is, would you let us be on your right and left when you are glorified, right? When was Jesus glorified? Jesus was glorified on the cross, the great moment of glory where he walks in obedience to the Father and he does the one thing that changes the world forever and gives us access to God, gives us life and life abundant. He makes dead people alive on the cross. And who flanked Jesus on his right and his left in his moment of glory? Was it disciples who had done some good works and maybe done some good teaching? Was it his disciples who were at all the Jesus Bible studies with Jesus? The disciples who had prayer time with Jesus? No, it was two criminals, right? Two people who they themselves and everyone looking up knew they were sinners. They were broken. They were helpless. There's no mask. There's no facade. Everyone knows these guys have nothing but brokenness and need in their life. Isn't it ironic? That's who flanks Jesus in his moment of glory, not those who are arguing amongst them who is the greatest. (laughs) They didn't get it. James and John and the disciples. Three years of walking with him, they didn't get it. They, They had a blind spot in their walk with the Lord. So here's what Jesus says. He says, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to follow me. I'm not asking anything else. I want you to look at the life I'm living. I want you to look at the path I'm walking on and I want you to follow my example. I want you to follow my lead. Here it is. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He describes to James and John this life of giving away their life, their faith, their fortune, their future, giving away everything for the sake of others. And this is the cool thing. This is the place where Jesus helps us. This is the place where Jesus becomes our servant. He becomes our servant in the place where we walk in obedience to God. He doesn't come to serve you to get you a promotion at work. That's not his goal. It's not his aim. He doesn't come to serve you to make you healthy, you wealthy and wise. That's not his goal. That's not what he comes to lift you up for. Yes, we've studied Romans 8 to ad nauseum this year. We understand that there's a future glory that outweighs the troubles of this world, that like a, a thimble towards an ocean, a thimble of water towards an ocean of water, the glory to the troubles of this world, right? right? We get that. But Jesus didn't come to help us in these days to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. He came to help us walk in God's will. That's what he came to service in, to help us to walk God's path, to take that path of the cross through this life, that his name and his power would be proclaimed through us and demonstrated through our lives, that more people would come to saving faith in Jesus because he has helped us to walk in a way that we could never walk on our own. And understand, this is not like Jesus saying, I cannot accomplish my mission unless you do this. That would be heresy, would would it not, right? This is not Jesus saying, God's will cannot be done unless God's people do God's will. That would be false teaching. What Jesus is doing here is saying, I really deeply at the core of who I am want you to be a part of the thing that I'm doing. I want to do this with you. I want to help you. I want to come under you and hold you up to walk in faithfulness so that you get to be a part of the redemption story that I am writing in this world. That's what Jesus is saying to James and John here. And Jesus then would take this road 
going to Jerusalem where he would take the world's values and power systems and flip them on their head and everything everyone thought that they knew would be turned upside down by Jesus. It's the game changer of all game changers. He would come, the path he would take is he would give his life away as a ransom for many to pay the price so that we could have freedom. And if we want to receive what he has to offer, if we want to enjoy the fruit of belonging to Jesus, we follow him on that path. We realize the way up is down, right? The way up for the people of God is first down. And this is a promise from Jesus. Listen to Luke 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is not just some quaint saying. This is a promise from Jesus Christ. Everyone who humbles himself will be humbled. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Tim Keller said this, if you really understand the cross, if you really get it, you're blasted out into the world full of joyful humility. Now, you don't need to help people. You want to help people to resemble the one who did so much for you and to bring him great delight. i tell you the one thing that is on my mind. The fourth week, the end of our one big thing series, and the one thing that's on my mind. So we've talked about evangelism. I mean, in a word, that's what we've talked about is evangelism. We've talked about it like this. We've said God really loves lost people, and he pursues them with this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's how God chases them in Christ. God loves lost people, and he really wants his plan is for every Christian, every Christian with their lips and with their life to declare the mercies of God, the kindness of God. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. He loves lost people and his plan is for us to go tell people about that, right? And I just wonder if any of us four weeks later have shared the gospel with anyone. In a new way with a person that we haven't before or if we have with intent and purpose at least initiated intentional relationships, we said, I'm diving deeper with this person. I'm, I'm leaning in because I know this person is far from God. I know they walk in darkness and I so want them to have life in Christ. And I've been called to it and I see this is the way God's going to do it. It's through people like me, each one reach one. It's people like me going and telling. Because I've heard a lot of people say, well, that was a good one, Pastor. Good word. I needed to hear that. And look, I said it too. I said it as, as the Holy Spirit's teaching me. I'm going, oh, that's a good word, Holy Spirit. Oh, Jesus, you wrote some good stuff, man. I love that line. I said that. And then you said that. And I just wonder if we're going to do something. And I go back to that first week in the series when we were looking at, at James 1. I just wonder... I wonder this all the time. I know you do too. I know you do too. We have great life group discussions. We're notorious for this. We have great Bible studies. We sing some great songs. It's great. And yet are we going to be merely hearers and not effectual doers? Right? God forbid that we come through the clarity of these last four weeks and not do something about it. Remember, eternity is waiting. Eternity is waiting. God is patient is what Peter said. He's patient. Matthew 24, Jesus said the end will come. 
when the world is heard. In that moment when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he had talked about this path to the cross. He had demonstrated this principle, I come not to be served but to serve. And he said, those who hear these words will be blessed if they do it. So will we, will we walk in blessing and follow him on the path, not just taking from the cross, but the path through the cross? Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, help us to really wrap our minds and hearts around the truth that you, you love people who are far from you, that, that lost people really matter to you. Help our hearts and our lives and our our calendar, our agenda, our checkbook, help every area of our life to understand and to believe that your plan for turning the world on its head is Christians declaring the mercies of God into the people that they interact with. Help us to believe it in such a way, not that we just assent to the idea, but that we place the weight of our life on it that we would live lives, lives purposed to shine brightly in the world so that many who walk in darkness would see light. All of this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.